We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our text begins at verse 4. They set out from Hor, the mountain, by way of the Red Sea. The Red Sea, hey, time out. Didn't we come this way before? The promised land is that way, north by northeast, not south and west out into the wilderness. That's not a pleasant place. Keel describes it this way. On the whole, it's a horrible desert with a loose sandy soil and drifts of granite and other stones where terrible sandstorms sometimes arise from the neighborhood of the Red Sea. No wonder the people became impatient on the way. Literally, the souls of the people grew short. Of course, this is not the first time. They quarreled with Yahweh at Mirabah over the water. They complained within the hearing of God in Numbers chapter 11, and fire broke out in the camp and burned many of them up. Dora and Dathan led a revolt, and the earth swallowed them and their families and their livestock whole. Even Aaron and Miriam chafed under Moses' leadership. Then, at the very doorstep of the Promised Land, after they'd sent spies into the land, they balked. And now, 38 years later, though most of the, same, the whiners are lying dead in the desert, we get more of the same. You know, we might shake our heads, but can you imagine this generation on a 38-year march to anywhere? We can't stop talking about time. It seeps its way into nearly every conversation. According to the editors of the Concise Oxford Dictionary, time is the most used noun in the English language. The titles of our self-help books mirror our obsession with time. The one year to a college degree, 30 days to a better life, seven days to a brand new me, even the 60-minute marriage builder. Still not quick enough to address your crisis? How about the one-minute father? or 60-second stress management, the one-minute healing experience, the one-minute therapist, or 60 seconds to serenity. 38 years, and we're going in the wrong direction? We'd be some of the first in verse 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Food and water are the presenting symptoms, the current complaint. But strip away the surface. What's the underlying issue? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Up from Egypt, that's gospel. God's mighty act of deliverance. It's the end of slavery, the end of taskmasters, the ends of brick without straws and the Egyptian lash. It's the defining event in the self-identity of Israel, the nation. This great act of deliverance that becomes the type of deliverance throughout their history. Isaiah depicts the return from Babylon as a new exodus. Matthew uses the same typology, speaking about young Jesus. And after Joseph takes the family to Egypt to flee Herod, in chapter 2 we read, And he was there until the death of Herod, in order that what was said by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I have called my son. It's also a type of our baptism, but more on that later. This generation, you and I, us, we are no different. We vote with our feet. Walking away from the blessings of baptism, walking away from the font. You want troubling statistics or anecdotal pictures? Let's do the numbers first. 
As of 2016, there were just over 2 million Lutheran Church Missouri Synod members. That's a decline of 2% in a year. Worship attendance is down almost 3% in a year. Expressed differently, it's even worse. On any given Sunday, someplace between 30 and 40% of the confirmed are actually in church. But the pictures can be the most disturbing. The pictures downstairs are confirmants. Faces and names you know in the street, but not in the pew. We vote with our feet. It's especially troubling if you draw a parallel between that and our text in Numbers 21, where we read, For there is no bread and there is no water, and our souls detest this miserable food. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had broken, he gave it to them, saying, Take eat, this is my body. Walking away, they detest this miserable food. Verse 6. Then Yahweh sent among the people fiery serpents. He's a just and a holy God, righteous in all his judgments. This is open rebellion, and this is the immediate consequences. And the snakes continually, repeatedly bit the people, and many of Israel died. St. Paul cites this incident for our benefit in 1 Corinthians 10. Paraphrasing Paul goes like this. All went through the sea and were baptized. All ate the same spiritual food, which was Christ. But God was not pleased with the majority, and many were struck down in the desert. And then he goes through this lengthy litany of which we find in verse 9. Some of them tested him and were destroyed by snakes. From which Paul concludes. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is more than just a salutary warning. The text portrays the shape and pattern of Christian life. Sin and its consequences produce repentance. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We've sinned for we spoke against God and against you. This morning we participated along with Karen in the same exercise of repentance. Together we renounce the devil and all his works and all his ways that infect our life. Through the law, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. Confessing that sin, we cling to the promise of baptism. You are mine, the triune God says, placing his name upon us by water and word. But still, the snakes slither around our ankles. Frankly, the story is just downright strange if you've never heard it before. I mean, most of us have known this in Sunday school, you know, since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. The problem is that God doesn't handle the problem in any way that makes sense, right? They prayed to the Lord, take away the snakes, but God doesn't take away the snakes. It's certainly within his power. He doesn't make them stop biting. He doesn't remove their poison. Instead, he makes a way for the people to live even after they've been bitten. I mean, it doesn't look like a cure or a solution, let alone salvation. In fact, it looks like more of the same. It looks like a snake. And then God commands, look and live. Verse 9. And it was if the snake bit a man and he looked to the bronze snake that he lived. Look 
in our text is not the most common verb to see in the Old Testament. It's not infrequent. It occurs 67 times scattered throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's the ordinary act of looking in the very ordinary way. But often, it's used in very extraordinary circumstances. Abram is commanded to look and count the stars. Genesis 15. So shall your offspring be. Lot's wife looks and becomes a pillar of salt outside Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. The people look as Moses enters the tabernacle for the very first time and the cloud descends, Exodus 33. Elijah's servant looks to the sea for rain, 1 Kings 18. But perhaps the most telling is Zechariah chapter 12. And they will look to me whom they have pierced, pointing to the tip of a Roman lance that opened Jesus' side as he hung on the cross. And out of it flowed blood and water, filling the font and the chalice of the sacraments. Look and live. Luther summarizes this symbol of salvation under three points. First, the bronze serpent was like the fiery serpent, but without poison. So also Christ was like us, the poisoned and the dying, yet without sin, the final paschal lamb without spot or blemish. Second, the snake was hoisted up on a pole for a sign. This is a theologically charged word in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah. Ten of the 21 times it occurs is in Isaiah, including this from Isaiah 11. In that day, the root of Jesse, i.e. Jesus, who shall stand as a signal, a sign for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. As the serpent, so also Christ is lifted up as a sign, suspended between heaven and earth, abandoned by the one, rejected by the other. Yet in his death, the reconciliation of both. And finally, in there, our poisoned state, the already as good as dead must look. Look with the eyes of faith at the serpent, at the crucified Christ. See them for what they truly are, the very gift of God. From our gospel reading in John 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will not die have eternal life. Look, and you will live, forgiven, healed, restored to the Father's presence. Look and live is how God works. He works through stuff. Much of modern Christendom stumbles over stuff. Wolf Mueller summarizes it this way. American Christianity starts with me. It continues with my works. It finds comfort in my closeness to God, and it is always looking inside for hope and peace. This is a perfect recipe for pride and despair, for a trust in ourselves or fear of God's punishment. The scriptures give us something different, something better, close quote. It gives us stuff. A bronze serpent, a sign included in God's command, verse 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, make for yourself a serpent and put it on a pole. Make this physical, tangible, especially visible sign. A bronze serpent 
included in God's command and combined with God's word, his promise. Continuing in verse 8, and it will be everyone who is bitten and looks upon it will live. And faith that grasps that word of God in the sign. A physical element combined with God's word that delivers his promise. A Lutheran understanding of sacrament. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are both prefigured here in the wilderness as Moses makes the bronze serpent, as the people are bitten and as they look in faith. But the antitype, the fulfillment, is so much greater than the type. They lived to die another day. But we will live forever. Only look and believe. God invites us to look upon his crucified son on the cross and live. But the snakes still slither around our ankles. Jesus does not sugarcoat the reality of our lives this side of the Jordan. Yes, hard times will come. We will stumble. And we will fall. And we will return to our baptism, taking comfort in God's promise sealed unto us by the water and the word. The promise of one lifted up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Therefore, let us follow him through the wilderness, through the snakes and the sorrows and the struggles. Follow him as he leads us to a new and greater promised land in the Father's presence. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.